0: Hi everyone, it's Damon Klotz. This bonus episode of the podcast is part of the Working Through It campaign, a multimedia experience that explores the seven stages of change that we are all going through. Head to culturefirst.com slash workingthroughit to learn more. All right, let's get started. I'm Chris
1: Fussell, and I am working through it by really focusing on the things I can control. Culture First.
0: Culture First. Culture
1: First. Culture 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 First. Culture
0: First. Culture First. Culture First. Culture First. I'm Damon Klotz. and this is Culture First. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Culture First podcast. This is episode four and part two of our special series called Working Through It. In part two, we're going to be working through it by overcoming denial with stabilizing leadership. Now, when you hear that topic, there's some questions that might be running through your head, and there's certainly some questions that are running through mine, such as, how do I help my colleagues who are in denial? And what do we do if members of our team are finding themselves paralyzed by the situations in front of them? Well, together, we're going to be exploring how strong, confident, and empathetic leadership can help everyone confront adversity in an optimistic and productive way. If you've already listened to episode three, then you know that I wanted to interview two guests on this topic about stabilizing leadership, but I wanted to do so from two quite different perspectives and maybe different vantage points. Now, my episode three guest was Larissa Conte, and she has a master's in earth systems. And we had a conversation about the behaviors that leaders should be leaving behind as we look to move forward together. And now the other perspective that I want to explore in part two was someone who's had to work in and through some of the toughest environments a leader can face, leading a team of Navy SEALs. Chris Fussell has spent 15 years as an officer in the Navy SEAL teams, where he was deployed multiple times to Iraq, Afghanistan and Yemen. He served as aide-de-camp to General Stanley McChrystal and is now president of the consulting firm The McChrystal Group. He's also the co-author of the trilogy of books that are focused on leadership and teams, which include Team of Teams, One Mission and Many Teams, One Mission. Fun fact, Culturam's org structure was actually based on the Team of Teams model, and it helped us grow from 12 employees to the now hundreds we have around the world. So I think you can tell by that intro why I wanted to speak to Chris, and why he's definitely someone that we can all learn from as we try to work through this. But before we get into my conversation with Chris, I wanted to read how General Stanley McChrystal describes him. Intellectually curious he said that Chris was asking questions that other people weren't asking on the battlefield. He was asking questions not about what we are doing, but how we were going to do it. Now, I love the term intellectually curious, and I certainly am going to aspire to always have that front and center for the rest of my life. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and we're going to jump straight into it. One of the words that I think uh, doesn't get talked about often enough when we're talking about leaders, um, and I think it's happening a lot more right now. Is the idea of actually addressing fear and what we're fearful of, or what are we scared of, and how much vulnerability should we show? But I think right now what we're sort of experiencing is that there is a a global exposure to fear, and you know whether it's fear for with, where you know will our team survive, will our company survive, you know fear for our health. So I, I feel like it's a conversation that's happening a lot more. In your opinion, how much exposure to your own personal fears should you be revealing um, if you're wanting to be an authentic leader?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's one we've been talking with a decent amount um, with with leaders that we work with uh, in the past few weeks and months. Whether it's fear or couched slightly differently around fear um, you know, how much how much vulnerability? Uh, what's what's the limit of that? You know, um, and I'm sure you are as well. I'm a, a big fan of Brene's, Brene Brown's work over the years. And she makes, uh you know, if you really dive into her work, she makes she's not a sort of soft edged person. I mean, she's pretty aggressive in interviews. I, I think she makes the point consistently in her work that, you know, vulnerability does not mean just openly breaking down in front of your teams what we've experienced previously. But there is this, I like to look at it through a lens of uncertainty, which can certainly drive fear in in some people. But my advice to uh, to leaders and organizations right now, especially, is, you know, if you want to once over say, um, and I've certainly had these, this conversation with folks in my organization saying, look, there is a certain amount of fear here, the fear of the unknown. Um, I've only been through, you know, a few phases of my life where you really didn't know what was going to happen on the other side of 47, so that was really uh, the events of 9/11 uh, when I was already in the military, the financial crash of 2008, which created some general uncertainty and some fear, financial fear that bubbled up in, in many of us, and then this, like we just don't know what's on the other end. So there's some fear associated with that unknown. But what I really try to think through and, and be uh, transparent about is the is the uncertainty that we're all facing, right? And so then how can and that's more tangible because then you can start to break it down into what are the things that we're certain about that we know to be true, and what are the things that we're uncertain about, or the unknowns, and then and then we can parse it down and start to come up with some sort of plan to move forward. You know, I, 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 I take our business as an example, the McChrystal Group. So we're a consulting firm. We're about eighty-five to a hundred people. We tend to float in that in that range, and we know what type of advisory work we do generally. Um, so I could say on the we are. It is uncertain where this is heading. That can manifest itself in in fear, um, for sure. But let's try to let's try not to focus on the fear. Let's try to break down what we are certain and uncertain about. We know we are good at this type of work, so pretty certain based on the human capital we have. We want our future to work to be in that space. We can also be relatively certain that of those of those things that we are really good at. Organizations are going to continue to need those. Now, how they how they how they adapt them to their system on the backside, or as we go through this crisis, may vary. But I'm pretty certain, you know, this is the type of business we will continue. We're not going to suddenly be, uh, you know, in 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 the supply chain industry, right? That would be a too massive of a of a pivot. Um, now, we are uncertain about when the recovery will start to uptick. We're, we're uncertain whether it'll be a U or V or some or something else. Uh, we're, we're uncertain if Schools will open in the fall, et cetera, et cetera. And then where, what are the things in those, uh, that uncertain column that we should be planning against? And what are the things that just don't matter to our business, et cetera. And I find, I mean, that's, that's kind of mission planning one one from the special operations world. Like what are the knowns about this mission? What are the unknowns? You might be deep down, everybody, you know, if you're going to jump out of a helicopter in the middle of the night and there's bad people around, uh, they don't want you there. They're, of course, you're, you're not human if there's not some sense of fear of the unknown and that uncertainty, but let's break it down into the things we can plan against and how we can mitigate that risk. And the end state of that really is a tamping down of that fear, because now I, I've compartmentalized uh, the sort of irrational part of my brain that I can't do anything about, and I've come up with an, a very logical plan to solve for those things that I, that, I, that I know matter. And I've identified those things that, that don't matter and I shouldn't worry about right now, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's, I think it's a great way to look at, at a time like this as well.
0: When you were describing some, some of those scenarios that leaders and companies are finding themselves in, you know, I think some companies would have at the start of um, their journey of trying to really think about how does information flow and how do we make decisions, maybe implement a model similar to, to Team of Teams, and others might right now find themselves actually just in a more team of teams model because of that's how work's trying to get done. And I'm fascinated from your work and, you know, the companies that you work with, you know, if a company finds some people trying to work in more of that kind of flatter way, but they're doing it as part of a system that still has structure, can this actually work when you've only got some teams on board or even maybe even some members of a team on board and others who just want to push back against it?
1: Yeah, it's... A- it's, it's really interesting. I was just having a discussion yesterday with a uh, senior leader in a Fortune 20 space. And um, she was saying, I think to your point, like we've gotten such great momentum going. Um, how do we maintain it where it makes sense to maintain it? Because there are naturally going to be people that will revert back to to the norm as soon as possible. And that's in that's in a lot of our just in our DNA. Like it's it's easier to run things through through structure. Right. Because, you know, where like we we're just talking about, you know, where decisions lie, you know, who, who's accountable for what, etc. Doesn't mean you should, you know, be in a chaotic storming phase forever. But it's also really important for leaders to be thoughtfully objective on this and say, you know, and this this goes back to even my own experiences and, and all of us that were in this special operations world. You know, this is almost 20 years ago. Right. But but after the events of 2001. Um, we didn't understand it at the time, but the world that was a that was a no going back moment, right? There was a, a fundamental change in how how uh, those sorts of conflicts were going to evolve, and it was a confluence of variables like uh, understandable frustration in certain groups around the world, um, a an information age enabled battlefield where technology allowed small groups to connect so quickly, right? Some of the basic stuff we learned out in, in team of teams. And there was a storming phase and there was part of us. And I'm, I'm sure I was probably in that camp too, kind of waiting for things to go back to normal. And because, you you know, it's hard to see a point of no, no turning back when you're in it. You know, you, you assume things are going to go sort of re- regress to the mean um, where because that's the system you grew up in. And it didn't. And luckily, we had leaders that came in and said, hey, if you're waiting to go back to the old way, like that's not going to happen because not because we don't want to, but look at the world around us. It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to ever look like it did in the 90s because the, the, the fundamental drivers have changed. Speed of information flow, uh, connectivity, network theory on the battlefield, all these things that had forced us to change, they weren't going to leave. They were just new realities. And I think this current situation, it's important for leaders that had that temptation to sort of slow things down or return to the norm, et cetera, In some ways, that 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 would make sense, like I was saying a moment ago. But but broadly, keeping that momentum uh, is is going to be critical because I think we're, I I think here too there is no there's no going back, right? This is this is a forward moment because we're going to be dealing with this for, I mean just this specific issue. I mean there's estimates up to two plus years or beyond, um, depending on the science, etc. And I think on the backside, that will be such a long transformation period that you're going to have. I mean, think about that. You're going to have employees that started yesterday that will be two or three years into their career in a Fortune 100 company. And then what are you going to say? Let's go back to how it was in 2019. They're going to go, I don't even know what you're talking about. Right. So there's I think leaders just need to keep the momentum, the energy, the focus and redefine how they run the organization. Um, Otherwise, it's going to redefine itself and you're going to be uh, sort of Left out to try to catch up with with the changes that are going to happen naturally anyway.
0: Yeah, I'm constantly uh, fascinated about the experience that people entering the workplace right now, you know, are having because, like you said, all of those um, all of those gut reactions and and learned behaviors like that's not there. And I think a lot of people are talking about you know how do we actually recreate. A brand new world of work after this. Like, what are some of the things that we want to keep? What are the, some of the, the things that just haven't served us yet? We've kept on as legacy behaviors for too long, and I'm hoping that some of those um, new people entering the workforce can actually play that role and actually saying, you know, we don't. I, I don't even know what we're going back to, which um, kind of leads me to one of my questions that I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast, you know, whether they're a formal leader or an aspiring leader, one question that they might be wondering right now is you know, I don't have formal authority over people. I don't have decision-making authority. Um, I don't have a budget, but like I want to lead. I want to help lead our organization or my unit through this time. What advice do you have for people who want to lead in that way, who don't have some of those more traditional mechanisms in place that we've associated with leadership?
1: I would say do it. <laughs> this is the time for people like that to, to move into the problem, right? Um, in normal times, those sort of... Um, Sometimes people like what you're describing, they're kind of the outlier thinkers. Um, maybe it goes back to the intellectual curiosity piece as well, like never really satisfied. Um, and at, at best times, that in a I say that in a, in a very healthy way. Um, and, you know, a, a younger or newer member of a team might not have a constituency yet that, that she's in charge of, but she might be hardwired to think, um, I'm always looking to improve stuff. Well, this is the opportunity. The rule The rule book is only a f- fraction as applicable now as it was three months ago. So jump in there and take the first move advantage, right? Um, create create opportunity, create new ways of doing business, et cetera. Because, you know, in the times when no one knows the answer, uh, I'm a huge believer that the person that moves first is going to be significantly advantaged. Um, as long as you're not creating existential risk to your teammates or the organization, this is the time to explore, you know, and, and that happens in a, in a, sort of frenetic way when, when a whole organization goes into crisis. But then as we were just talking about, many people want to sort of settle back down. It's those outlier personalities that will keep pressing into that problem uh, that I think are best served. You know, one of the fascinating things, I think this is what we're going through right now is a, it's a huge network problem. Um It's it's a, a global pandemic, right? And it's spreading through network uh, means, human-to-human contact, we're, we're more inter- interconnected world. So it's it's so similar to what we faced um, in fighting a, a network threat like Al-Qaeda al- and, and the knock-on effects that it creates. But in those times of uncertainty, what's really interesting when, when you're facing a network problem is that a network doesn't know what it's going to do next, right? It's just following opportunity. And so in my experience, the only way to really deal with that is if you sit on the edge and you try to solve one thing, step back, study it, and figure out what problem you'll solve next. You're never going to keep pace with it because as soon as you solve one thing, you're you're pushing energy into the network and you're forcing it to change. Um, you could map that thinking over to the way a, a disease flows. Um, you know, if you could, if you shut down one mode of travel, it's going to find another to to spread to another city, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think the best uh, certainly the experience I had in, in what I witnessed in, in really great leaders against the Al-Qaeda problem were those that went into it, interacted with the problem, and then moved as quickly as they could to the next problem deeper inside of the network. And they would do that as fast and as, and penetrate as deeply as they could until our leadership and our, our, the cadence of the organization said, okay, now stop, let's resynchronize ourselves. And it was those really aggressive uh, leaders down at the front line Many of which didn't have the scope of authority and the number of leaders, underneath them, but they were went into the network every opportunity they were given. And they were ultimately in a, in a sort of bottom up and learning organization approach. They became the subject matter experts closest to the problem that were then given voice up into the larger organization. Uh, and they would they would have opportunity to talk to thousands of people on a regular cadence and say okay here's what we're learning we tried this it didn't work so we did this and it worked really well and now thousands of the people would say "Wow, that was brilliant what damon damon's only charged of six people but he's now changing the thinking of six thousand people because he's that leader that's, that's constantly pushing into the problem
0: yeah i think that's that's great advice for anyone who can see a, a problem or something that needs solving. And even if they don't have that structural authority to say like, if I'm closest to it right now, if I have the context, if I have the ability to do something, then um, you know, default to action. And I think that's one of the core tenets of stabilizing leadership right now is like not sitting on things too long, especially when people are sitting there with some of these fears and uncertainty that's associated with working through these times. And when I've heard you talk about um, two of the drivers of action on, on the front lines of a crisis, you've spoken about clarity of mission and transparency of communication. And I'd love to break down those two separately and seeing if they're changing right now. Because what happens to a company mission during a crisis if survival seems to be the only goal that everyone can center around?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's really important. And, and, and another piece of uh, area that we're exploring pretty regularly with with many of our our clients is um, just to that point, like what what is we had this beautiful strategy that we rolled out in, at the end of 19, we we're going to implement throughout 20, et cetera. Um, what is that? Is that, is there value there right now? And the answer might be, maybe not, you know, maybe, maybe it was a really good plan for the world that doesn't exist right now. And so maybe it's survival or whatever it may be. We, we would argue it's probably vastly simpler right now than in what it was three or four, four months ago. And so, taking a hard look at what that should be, what's that sort of North star that you're trying to communicate to your folks is a is, a, is a really important um, first step, because otherwise um, you're going to have people that are trying to over-engineer it, work into the plan that's no longer applicable. And by the time, you know, the, the actions lead to results that trickle up, et cetera, et cetera, everybody will get out of, you know, out, out of alignment. And, even if you're able to sort of push yourself through the, the, the problem, you might get to the end of this in six, eight, 12 months and find that, yeah, you've got an organization that's survived, but it's spent 12 months now, executing it, I guess, a strategy that just no longer makes sense. So now we're, we're, we're really disaggregated in how we're how we're viewing ourselves and the market, et cetera. And so pivoting that around to a very a, a really simplified discussion, um, you know, we, we we put out a piece recently that made the argument um, that you know, take your take your strategy, um, put it to the side, sort of reboil what what's what's a simple like two page on what we have to do to get through this look like. You know, how how do we maintain our position in certain markets? How do we maintain certain critical clients? How do we continue to engage with our customers, et cetera, et cetera? Then boil that down again to uh, you know a a two paragraph that you can. You know, so the elevator pitch and then boil it down again to something you can throw on a blank whiteboard and explain to anybody in your organization uh, super quickly. Um, and once you've got it to that level, then you probably have something that you can get everybody aligned with. Um, you know, interestingly, um, this was something that Stan McChrystal was great at. I mean, I, I've never seen a leader that was facing a more complex fight than what he was doing when he was running all forces in Afghanistan, the, the, the entire international coalition, at sort of peak level of complexity against the, the al-Qaeda Taliban threat in, in, in Afghanistan. And he was, um, you know, sort of a, a scholar general, like he would spend time down on the front lines with the most junior frontline soldiers who were literally going out on patrol day after day. And get in front of them at a blank whiteboard and say, look, here's how we're seeing the situation. And in a very simple manner, sort of capture how he was seeing the in seeing the problem. And he, he did that day after day for months on end to the point where, you know, the young 20-year-old soldier on the front line knew it as well as McChrystal did and could explain it to the next soldier and say, look, here's what's going on in this fight and how we're trying to win. And fast forward to just uh, a week or so ago, had a great discussion with. Roz Brewer, the current CEO at Starbucks, brilliant leader. I mean, she's just had an amazing career. One of the most uh, just solid senior leaders I've ever I've ever been around, and she sort of said the same thing: like, "What are you? What are you? What are you doing right now to stay in touch with the organization?" And she's doing these like massively deep skips uh, down into the organization, all the way to going out into you know the front line, meeting with not meeting, but going into Starbucks and you know, people in the organization recognize her. And she'll, she'll sit down and speak with the, the frontline baristas and, and listen to them and say, OK, look, from, from our level, here's how we're seeing the the, the space, our market, our, our position there. Here's some our simple approach to how we're going to get through this. Here's what you can be doing at the front edge. Here's what we're trying to do at headquarters. And you know, she walks out of there and she's got six frontline baristas inside Starbucks that understand her view as the CEO of the entire global enterprise. And I, I just think that that level of clarity and simplicity in a highly complex space like we're in right now is, is critical for leaders. And it really comes down to the definition of here's where we are and here's what we're trying to accomplish. It's not this 60 page strategy that get, got released in November. It's, it's got to boil down to some uh, simple and, and, and clearly understood drivers at this point.
0: And that consistency of language, and ensuring that regardless of the level, that people can relay it in the same way, that like with and with the same conviction that like they wrote it themselves, and that when everyone starts speaking that unified language, especially during a time like this, you know, it boosts camaraderie, it boosts engagement, but also it means that you have a very clear direction on the mission that you're trying to actually achieve, which um, you know we'd argue is critical at all times in business, but even more critical right now when focus is um, just so important.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, one of the things that's a real personal memory from my time in the the special operations world was that um, McChrystal boiled that issue down for us to one word, which was that stuck with me, which was credibility. In talking about the fight and everything that was going to go on, he would constantly come back to you know, we're running missions and it's crazy, people all over the world, et cetera, et cetera, highly intense times. But what's our overarching goal? Uh, credibility of the organization. So any action you take needs to, where possible, improve our credibility with one another and with outside actors. And when that's not possible, at a minimum, do no harm. Don't Don't hurt our credibility. Right? So you might have the opportunity to execute some great mission if it if it hurts our credibility with our with our other units or with outside actors. Just don't do it. We'll have another opportunity. Let's let's protect our credibility as a force first. And it was just super, super simple and clear And because you could measure anything through it. Like, yeah, we could do that. But is it going to help or hurt our relationship with some other force? It's going to hurt it. Let's slow down. And we know we'll find another opportunity to go after that. Let's shore up the relationship first.
0: I love that. Yeah. And just knowing that like that is an anchoring point for every decision that gets made. That's how you're able to really galvanize a huge amount of people around one clear thing that is just so important. What advice have you typically given to others over the years that you found yourself actually saying back to yourself during this time?
1: That's a great question. A big believer in understanding where you can position yourself to have best impact. Um, one of the things that I was certainly learned in the military was watching uh, great battlefield leaders, whether it was frontline or a layer up, uh, or even all the way to the strategic. And there's this intuitive sense of I need to be physically in this spot, focused on this part of the mission. Um, you know, Stammer Crystal at, st- at the strategic level, he said, "I am I am in charge of this global counterterrorism force." Normally, that would be headquartered in this part of the United States. I'm going to physically put myself in Iraq because that's the center of gravity of this fight. And he spent five years there. So I think right now for leaders, asking yourself, where where can you be physically or mentally focused to have the greatest impact for your family, your teams, your organization, et cetera, is a, is a,
0: is a critical piece of advice. I know a lot of people are thinking about this right now. And I think um, your time, um, you know, can really sort of help us with this is around the the concept of survivor's guilt. And I'm seeing this come up, um, you know, from teams who have maybe had to let go of some of their colleagues or organizations who have halved overnight, or even the survivor's guilt of, you know, if your company is doing well during this time, which I know some people are like, you know, who am I to actually be doing well during this time? So based on your experience, um, you know, how have you helped people manage survivor's guilt?
1: Yeah, it's going to be an important one, especially when we look back on this moment. We'll learn a lot about what what type of businesses thrive in this situation. Others will build resiliency into their plan, I would imagine, based on on those learnings. But the um, on the survivor's guilt piece, personally, I think I've also seen what I found some pretty impressive moves in industry on those that are that are thriving, you know, offering uh, free services, expanding their uh, sort of charitable contributions, redirecting their charitable contributions. Um, You know, uh, Anheuser-Busch, like redirecting millions over to Red Cross. I mean, things like that, um, that have just been pretty inspiring. I think that's one, one way, like, okay, we're doing okay, but we're doing okay not because we suddenly came up with a brilliant strategy. The world changed in a way that our services are more necessary now. And how can we redirect some of our energy and effort to help help others during this time, I think is one critical part, but we're, we're seeing that, that, that happen. And then for most organizations, um, uh, I had a conversation with a, a peer and, and, and mentor that I've always learned a lot, from, uh, over the last 10 years or so. We said, look, the organizations that, that come out of this the best are, are going to be the ones that are putting others first and, and really trying to push, uh, any useful ideas, Content, et cetera, into the market so that others, others can learn in real time. Let's worry less about um, getting the contract signed right now than, than we're worried about um, just making sure we're all th- uh, getting back on footing and, and potentially thriving on, on the backside of this. So I think um, you know it's a it's a givers market, so to speak, and uh, these things seem like they last a long time, but in hindsight, it'll be this intense. Tense phase, even if it's a two-year cycle, um, it, it, it's not going to be the rest of human history, right? So, in in years, people will look back and remember who was playing the giver approach, trying to really help others get through this, and who was, who was acting as a taker in this time. Which, frankly, in in a positive way, I haven't seen a lot of that in, in this market, which I think is a good a good comment about sort of humanity as it as it is today.
0: A big thank you to Chris Fussell for joining me for today's episode. I want to reflect on one of the final points that Chris made. On the other side of situations that we need to get through, we will remember those who weren't trying to get us to sign the contract, but those who are actually showing up to help us during this time. And I want you to think, who is showing up genuinely as a partner right now? Who are the leaders who are making you feel seen and heard during this time? And who's there simply trying to just manage you? It's those feelings and those experiences that I think are going to really be the difference between the people who are going to make us feel like we're pushing through this and those who are going to help us work through this. I hope you've enjoyed these two episodes about stabilizing leadership. And we've got some incredible resources from Chris and the McChrystal Group that I want to make sure that you know about. So if you head to culturefirst.com working through it, you can download those resources as well as see the entire multimedia experience. There's human stories from people who are trying to work through it. There is an inside look into how Coltram's working through it during this time, as well as some other great resources from our partners. So please do check it out, even if it's just to go see the incredible graphic that we have up there. Our team of illustrators are doing an incredible job, so it's definitely something that you should go check out. So I'd love to also hear your takeaways from part two of this series, and you can share them with me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can uh, tag me at Damon Klotz, D A M O N K L O T Z. And use the hashtag working through it. I want to be part of this conversation with you as we're all finding ways to work through it during this time. And finally, if you're still listening, thank you. (laughs) And it would mean the world to me if you could spend a couple of minutes leaving a review for this podcast wherever you listen. One of the values at CultureAmp is learning faster through feedback and I want to hear how these episodes are helping you. So until next time, I hope you're having a great day wherever you are in the world and please stay intellectually curious.